This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by ProFarmer. ProFarmer provides key information to help farmers make profitable decisions. Go to tryprofarmer.com for your free trial today. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Many of us listening to these broadcasts have a tie to agriculture. Perhaps you have a farm, business, or land that you will pass to a next generation or sell to others interested in the industry. Those generational transitions can be filled with emotion and doubt, wondering if we are doing the right thing to be fair to all and help everyone succeed. This week we discuss some of the common mistakes that are made in the process. It's our topic for this week's Farm in the Countryside and it's brought to you by ProFarmer. Start making confident marketing decisions with ProFarmer. ProFarmer's condensed style is designed to save you time while giving you the important information you need when making those important marketing decisions. And you'll stay on top of profit opportunities with ProFarmer's mobile sell alerts and easy-to-use mobile app. Start a ProFarmer free trial today. Just visit tryprofarmer.com. That's tryprofarmer.com. Just about all of us have a family, and depending on your age, you may have either inherited some assets from the generations before you, or be considering how to pass along your life's work to those coming up behind you. Rena Stiegel is with Transition Point Business Advisors in Des Moines, Iowa, and a lot of her work is with people doing just that, passing assets from one generation to the next. Rena's workshops are often day-long experiences that dive into many aspects of the process, So in the time we had, we focused on some of the common mistakes that many of us make, not because we are out to swindle someone, but often quite the opposite. Our desire to do what's right causes us to miss some things that we didn't take into account. I think you'll find some good information you can put to use from our conversation. Rena, we have visited before and there's so many things that we could talk about, but let's talk about a couple subjects that perhaps have been on on your mind here lately. You talk with people a lot about planning for the future, and I think all of us hopefully, are thinking about that. But as we plan, sometimes we plan and and we becomes I. Talk about how planning sometimes misses people and the problems that result out of that. Sure. So the planning that I do is succession planning with farm families, right? Helping farm families make the decisions about how to move farming assets from one generation to the other. And it's difficult work and it requires a team. But the tendency sometimes is because it is difficult and there's big decisions that need to be made. Sometimes it's easier to feel like if I just go into my office and just make those decisions and then maybe or maybe not tell everybody what I've decided, we're going to get through this a lot faster. And it'll be a lot easier if I don't get all these opinions involved. And the, the challenge that I find with that is that the plan that a person may develop is not a plan that is going to work for everybody. And so that's where we end up seeing those plan disruptors when something happens out of order. And we've got families then in disharmony because they were not informed or not included in the plan. And it it just doesn't work and it leaves a mess for everybody. So as you think about the process, no matter where people are at, whether they have thought about it or not, 
Let's talk first to the folks that maybe feel left out. How do they have a voice when maybe they aren't even active in an operation, but yet they have some type of interest in it? How do they begin to have a voice in what's going to happen? Yeah, I think that's really common too, right? It, that in, insecurity in family groups or in leadership teams comes when people are not well informed about the things that are ultimately going to affect them, whether it's a short-term or long-term affect. So when people are feeling like that, usually they're not the only ones. There are others that are feeling insecure or, or under-informed. And so when we work with families, a lot of times it's understanding where that's occurring because those are gaps in the way that the operation is running or the way communication is being handled. And so to figure out what is the right communication, so getting the right people in the right conversations talking about the right things. And sometimes that takes sort of peeling things apart and realizing maybe we've got too many people in one set of meetings, so they're over-informed in things that don't even really affect them, so they're bored and unengaged and not paying attention anyway, and we're under-informing in areas that maybe they're more interested in. So that's kind of a strategy move that families have to work through to, to really analyze patterns of communication and get those realigned to be more effective. As we go forward, how do you involve people who have varying degrees of ownership or day-to-day responsibilities in operation? How do you make sure that all of them are feeling like they're communicating and are a part of that? Is there any good strategy to do it? Sure. I mean, that's a really important thing to realize, especially when you're bringing young farmers back to the farm, is sometimes there's this belief that well, if we want to have a successful succession plan, then we've got to get everybody up to speed as fast as possible. So even though there's a belief that we need to do that, there may be a fear of the consequences of that, right? So if we let people into financial information too early, they're going to have information that they are not prepared for. And I think that that's a really valid concern, right? We want to have people informed at the right time at the right level. So Again, you have to really think through that if if we're working with succession planning, it's like who needs to know and who needs to know what. And just like you would never put a kindergarten in a college course, you've got to be thinking about if we've got young farmers coming in, what is that right development plan for that person to move them from where they're starting to the area that they're going to be ultimately invested in, which is hopefully ownership. So it's just really about recognizing that there's a progress and there's a a plan that needs to be put in place for those things and then just working with people to develop that so that it works right for everybody. I know you certainly work with people that maybe sometimes have done it wrong so I'm hoping you have some good examples out there. What are the ones that are doing it right? What is there any common thread that you say hey here's something that we can learn from because these folks that are doing it right tend to do this? Yeah I think one of the key things I think about especially when you've got you know, young people coming back is that that sometimes we tr- go from, you know, part-time, sometime employee as kids are finishing up high school and college, and then when they're coming back for that first day of full-time employment, we really haven't done any baselining of expectations. We've not talked about what full-time employment really means, what the expectations are. We haven't really assigned the role that they will have. And and so sometimes people come back with expectations. Well, when I come back from college, I'm going to step into major roles, major management responsibility, or I'm going to have full access, which is then going to be shortly followed up by ownership of some kind, because that is what they're, they're 
they've got expectations of, and mom and dad may have completely different expectations, right? They're thinking sweat equity won't have ownership till we don't know when because we don't have a plan. So when the one thing that I see farm families doing more and more correctly is setting expectations and the stage for kids to come home. And then what is that, that sort of career development plan that's ultimately going to pit them into ownership? And I, I, to add to that, too, I love it when they have ownership criteria where they're spelling out to their kids, this is what it will take for you to gain ownership here. And I think that's awesome when it's that well thought out and it's communicated fully up front. When you think about ownership, and let's say that we have more than one kid, uh, how do you make it so that as fair as possible that happens because some kids come back some don't and you perhaps want to take all this into evaluation i don't know how you come up with a good answer to that but i think a lot of us struggle with that yeah and i think that that's really just doing some you know pre-planning on the front end right owners have to be talking about what does that transition of ownership look like and they've got to work out what their own personal philosophy is between fair versus equal some families it very much is equal is equal so if I've got four kids, it's a four-way split. Other families take a little bit different look at it, and they say, you know, some families go to the extreme of saying, if you're not on the farm, absolutely zero farm assets will go to you. And they're very upfront about that. And so when, you, when you're talking to kids about career opportunities, the more clear that you can be, then they can make those decisions about, is ownership in the farm important to me? And at what level do I have to participate to, to get that? So... The advice that I give is that I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I have seen every aspect between equal is equal all the way up to you get nothing if you're not home work great. It's just a matter of being in agreement with your partners about that, communicating it to the next generation so that they can make informed decisions, and then you know working out the path for how that, tr- that ownership will transition because we still have a problem out there where people bank on SWEC e- equity, but they do not assign value to that. So the, in Gen 2's mind, if I've worked for four years, my equity may be a lot. And in Gen 1's mind, if you work for four years, that equity may be very little because in their mind, you're still learning. And so really, you know, assigning value to what sweat, sweat equity is worth and then how will the next generation cash in that sweat equity so that it actually buys them something. So families have to be real careful with vague or under develop plans around bringing kids home. I'm curious as you've done this for a while now and hopefully folks have done some planning but most families have two or three kids and then they have grandkids and things begin to split apart. How have you seen folks uh, transition and do this well where they may have several very very small pieces of the pie out there and begin to put those back together so you don't split up a good operation for those that want to carry on the operation? I think the ones that do that the best are perhaps the ones that can take a farm that has a lot of legacy and emotion attached to it and really transition mindset into looking at that as a proper, fully functioning business. When they can, they can, you know, take sort of that legacy out of the way. And it's not that we want them to forget about it, right? That's a really important piece of agriculture is our legacy to it. But to be able to say, okay, if we are running a business and we want this to be a multi-generational business that's available for anyone in our family, then how do we build the size and scope and the structure to be able to support all those people? 
because when legacy and emotions are at the front of it, it's really hard to keep competition and, you know, feelings of entitlement from getting out of hand. So when we can look at these these farm businesses as proper businesses, then we do all the things that are going to keep, you know, entitlement and competition to a minimum, which is good HR practices, having roles, having a good compensation structure that isn't paying everybody exactly the same, but paying them for value and for the job that they're performing. And so when we can get a little bit more structure around those things, multiple generations of families and multiple families can work very harmoniously together when we have the right structure in place. I'm curious, one of the questions I get a lot is from folks that say, you know, maybe I have a brother or sister or other family member that's not coming back to the farm. They have ownership. They obviously need to pay paid something for that, but man, land and things cost so much. How do you help them work through that? Because you don't want to break up an operation because I don't have the cash now, but hopefully you could at some point. How do you begin to work through that? I think that that really goes back to continuity planning, honestly, of, you know, sitting down and talking about what is ownership really worth here. Because if there's an expectation that ownership is going to pay big dividends, that may not be something that your farm can support. So you have to, again, be really clear about expectations versus reality. You've got to set up expectations with operators around their obligation to pay dividends to owners or not. Because some families will give ownership but expect that there's going to be 100% reinvestment into growth. Well, for some that may be okay, but others, you know, again, if expectations are misaligned, that's definitely going to be a place where the non-farming owners are going to be in conflict with the farming owners. So thinking through a good strategy of that, I have seen a lot of situations where the fear of having to pay somebody for their ownership um, makes it so that they tie up ownership to where there's really little to no value. It's just complication. And so families, if they think through that very carefully and message that correctly, a lot of times they can figure their way through that without putting a huge burden on the operators. Do you find, or perhaps this is different with every family, that we need a lot of outside professional help to do this? And I'm not always talking about, you know, lawyers and so forth, although it certainly involves that. Or is a lot of this stuff that we can do on our own, or does it just widely vary? Well, I think it always is really good to do a lot of the work just internally before you ever involve professionals, because there are things that you can get on the same page about and topics that you can discuss and you can figure out where are we out of alignment or where do we maybe need more information. So you're doing, if you do a lot of the the kind of that pre-work yourself, then when you get the professionals involved, you can really direct their time and talent to the right things to help you make decisions where maybe you do need a little bit of that more strategic support. I think that um, it's important to involve professionals because there are so many things about these discussions that do require like very specific and specialized knowledge. But do we have to have every professional sitting at the table for every meeting? Absolutely not, because a lot of this has to be directed from the family itself, for sure. One of the things that you've been speaking about lately is resiliency. And one thing I should ask is, is that something that is new because you think we need to be more resilient now in light of things? Or is it perhaps something that has always been out there and I'm just taking time to speak about it now? I think that, you know, resiliency is another one of those brilliant little buzzwords that have, has uh, gotten some, some spotlight time right now. Because honestly, you know, for as long as I've been in agriculture, I've seen the most resilient people, right? 
people that have withstood tremendous things only to get up and go back out and do it again, even though they're not working in the best of conditions or under the best of circumstances. So resiliency is definitely part of who and what we are. But when you think about taking a family through things, families sometimes are really comfortable being uncomfortable and they make being uncomfortable or being in dysfunction normal. So one of the things that I always want to challenge my families is can we take a different approach to our dysfunction or our disharmony to, you know, kind of turn that around or to make it better so that we're, we're not just functioning under this umbrella of it's okay to be, you know, in disharmony with each other because we're family and we love each other, right? We can do better than that. And I think these large operations that we're seeing today and the value of operations do require a different kind of leadership. And it requires people being able to work together because of the size and the the net worth of some of these families. It's You've got to be able to work together. And it's so much more fun to work together when you're not fighting with each other all the time. So... I, I like to talk about resiliency in a more specific way, which is really about just controlling our mindset and our belief that things cannot get better when we're thinking about our relationships with families because things can get better. It just requires shifting and it requires talking and it requires getting a plan for those things. But I've seen some amazing, amazing things happen when families are real specific and work on purpose to make relationships better. So what would be some of those things then that maybe help those families be resilient and move forward when others get mired down and and don't move forward? I think a lot of it just has to do with getting rid of some of the language that the families use. So sometimes when we look at family members that have horrible habits, we just have this tendency to say, well, that's just the way they are and they'll never change. And I don't believe that. I believe that people adapt and change all the time. And sometimes we have created permission to play environments where because we say that's just the way they are, then we've actually given them permission to stay exactly the way they are today. And that's not healthy for anybody. Like, that's just, that's not good for the person who's in the dysfunction, and it's not good for the people that have to live with the dysfunction. So when we can really challenge those beliefs and create some conversation around those things, we, we can oftentimes make situations much, much better. You mentioned leadership earlier, and a lot of these operations, it doesn't take a very large operation these days to, to have a lot of cash and cash flow flowing through it. Hopefully, they're making some income, too. How do we have better leadership? Because for some folks, that is something that maybe didn't come naturally because maybe I'm working on the farm, doing a good job, but I don't think about, oh, wow, I've got a lot of family members now, external family members married in. I've got to tell them how to lead them. How do I get my leadership skills up to, up to speed? Well, I think that that has to really come, that's got to be tied to goals, right? If you're, you're not going to become a better leader if you don't really see the need or the desire to do so. So we still have a lot of people out there that, that still love to just rule with the iron fist and dictate terms and, you know, just expect that people will deploy when they are told to deploy. What I love about kind of where we're heading in agriculture, though, is, again, it's that shift from going from family farm to a business run by a family. And that is a very different approach. And so what we're seeing is people invest time into, you know, getting around other leaders. And we're seeing a huge uptick in, you know, 
taking a more careful look at HR and the way that we're dealing with conflict, the way we're setting expectations, the way we're holding people accountable to their contribution. And so I, I think that all of those things are then creating the right structure and format that people are able to elevate and they can actually see how do I go from point A to point B. And I see a lot of people that, you know, kind of don't necessarily embrace the, the thought that we need to become better leaders, but they are doing the work anyway. And I really love that because you've got to really admire people that will go ahead and do things that they don't want to do. I, I love that. I, I just love it about farmers. You, you have been doing this for a little while now. I'm curious, do we see changes as time goes on? So from one generation to another, or as we grow older, do we just simply go into the role of the generation before us? What, what changes have you seen in this uh, over time? Well, I mean, technology, right? Technology is like the big divide. There are those that embrace it and love it and can't live without it. And then there's like people that are right on the cusp of that where they're sort of begrudgingly getting into some of it. And then there is a whole nother generation that feels like the whole mess is just crazy and why do we have to do it? But what I love about it is that it is bringing generations together because we all need to use it, even though some of us don't like it as much as others. And I feel like that's just another place where we're starting to see resiliency, but we're also seeing a great opportunity to create conversations between the generations. Because I know that my nieces and nephews can run technology way better than I can, and they're teaching me things all the time. So it's almost like this really cool role reversal of teacher to student, and I think that that's a great way to bring generations together. We're both learning, and we're both, all the generations are learning, and all the generations are teaching, which I think is a really cool place to be in. In the time we've got left, uh, other things that you're seeing out there, whether it's things we're doing well, things not so well, emerging topics... What types of things would you want people to be aware of? I think that if I had to put like a red flag on anything, I think it would be the fact that we still are very reluctant to really be, I guess, very truthful about where we're at with certain things, you know, where we know we need to do succession planning or we know we need to update an estate plan or we know we need to get a better buy-sell in place. And yet we just simply resist doing that and we put it off and we find lots of other things to do which really makes everything that everybody's working so hard for it it puts it in a very vulnerable position so if there's one thing that I could encourage everybody today that I wish we were doing a little bit better is that when we hear something that we need to do and we know we need to do it that we would figure out a way to action that and get those things in place and that would be the one thing that I would hope we would get a lot better at because we have seen a run-up in prices, inflation in some cases, has that changed any of this? Or is it just, we just put bigger dollar numbers on everything that we were already doing? I think that, you know, anytime that we have, like, things that are shifting, for instance, you know, we know we're coming up against the estate tax um, exclusions dropping. We know that, and, and people are aware of it. So we've still got, you know, a good almost two years, and yet I see people instead of taking action and really being able to put good planning in place so that they can take advantage of that, they'll wait to the last minute and then they'll be super frustrated because all the professionals are very busy and we won't have good planning. And I think people will end up making mistakes. And so I'm just hoping that, again, we will, you know, just when we know we need to do something to just start actioning that, even though it might be difficult, that would be the one thing I hope we get better at. 
Rena, I always appreciate the time. I know you're out there helping lots of different folks, and uh, thank you for what you do out there in the ag communities. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be on the show with you. Thanks. I know I learned much from Rena, and as I've shared in the past, the most important thing is to not put off those conversations. We may avoid the topic because we fear we'll make someone mad or upset the family. However, approaching the topic with patience and caring is so important. And if you never have the conversations, you almost always will make the problem worse in the long run. And if you have doubts about all of this, do call upon folks out there to help with this type of work. They can guide a family through the process. The goal is to help future generations, and it's hard to do that if you never start the process. One more quick note, even if you have had these conversations, it's not a once-and-done plan. Revisit that plan and make updates. I know that's what our family continues to do in order to keep up with all individuals and their needs. Thanks for joining me on this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on our daily show, American Countryside, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside or American Countryside. And you can hear these shows in a variety of ways at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or your favorite podcast platform. If you miss one of those shows, just go back to one of those platforms to catch up on other topics as well. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by ProFarmer. ProFarmer provides key information to help farmers make profitable decisions. Go to tryprofarmer.com for your free trial today.